Sleeping Beauty, 1959. After his directorial efforts that trailblazed the decade alongside Jackson and Lusk, Clyde Geronimi returned to supervising director on Sleeping Beauty, alongside the talents of Eric Larson, Les Clark, and a name that will come to dominate the 1960s and 70s at Disney, Wolfgang Reitherman. Returning to the magical fairy tale dressings that Disney knows well, the studio adapts Sleeping Beauty on the scale that Lady and the Tramp set the stage for, this time in full Technicolor glory. Sleeping Beauty is a masterpiece of animation, telling the story of a princess who is cursed to die by a petty Maleficent once she comes of age, causing the protective good fairies of the kingdom to devote their life to protecting her. The opening sequences that convey this are breathtaking in style and efficiency as the first two fairies give their gifts through gorgeous impressionist moving collages. Maleficent appears in explosive green flames and curses the princess, leaving the third fairy to gift away to break the curse. True love's kiss. Through animation and voice acting, these performances draw the audience in instantly. The menace of Maleficent as a towering force that perfectly offsets the charming and light-hearted joy the three fairies share. They decide this final gift is not enough, however, and vow to raise Aurora themselves, away from the castle and without magic to hide her identity until she grows past her cursed age. The film then jumps ahead to her cursed birthday, and she, raised as Briar Rose, is blissfully unaware of what awaits her as she heads out of her forest cottage home to collect berries. Her gift of song is on display as she sings with birds and other woodland animals in a fantastic sequence that fully utilizes the widescreen frame and direction and blocking, and her gift of beauty is also evident in her design and the way she carries herself. As she crosses a log that fills the width of the frame, the camera goes under it to enter a new scene and properly introduce her romantic lead, Prince Philip. Philip is seen as a young boy in the opening sequences as he is told he will marry this Princess Aurora once older to unite two powerful families, which he shows skepticism for. Now he is seen riding his horse through the same woods Aurora is in, showing his own charm in a one-sided conversation with his horse. Aurora sings about her dream to one day marry a prince, and drawn by the beautiful song, Philip joins in, instantly enraptured by her. She too is taken quite quickly, but is anxious due to never interacting with someone like this before. Aurora runs off not knowing this boy is a prince, but plans to meet him later tonight. The couple's meet-cute is charming. It is more grounded than the dreamy ballet in Cinderella, but much more substantial still than Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The performances sell their infatuation with one another incredibly well, and both spend the second act of the film declaring they have met the love of their life and rebelling against their arranged marriages, which allows the audience to revel in the misunderstanding that they are arranged with each other. Aurora learns she is betrothed when she returns home to a surprise birthday party, for which the fairies caved and used magic last minute. Despite attempts to hide this from watchful eyes, they are noticed by one of Maleficent's goons who overhears Aurora learn the truth of her status and future. The knowledge that her marriage is already planned brings her dismay, and as she goes to the castle in her new gown, she sobs in her intricately ornate new room. Maleficent has now found her just in time to enact her specific curse, dying at the touch of a spinning wheel, and then exits the tower in another spectacular explosion before the fairies can respond. To further ensure her success, Maleficent has laid a trap for Philip so Aurora can never receive her true love's kiss, and one of the fairies learns Aurora's forest date and Philip are one and the same as well. Up to this point, everything in the film is remarkably effective, be it funny, charming, endearing, or sweet, and every fame is a visual accomplishment as the design simplifies the shapes like a storybook, but uses phenomenal color, palettes, and motion to imbue everything with personality and emotion. All of this has set up the film for its final set pieces that reach even new heights. Aurora now asleep, the film focuses on the three fairies trying to set things right after their 16-year plan failed in the 11th hour. They begin by putting the rest of the kingdom into a sleep like Aurora's, shown through the castle becoming tinted in a somber lime hue. They travel to Maleficent's mountain castle, an imposing and jagged presence glimpsed at earlier in the runtime, and they sneak inside to free Philip and give him a magic sword and shield. 
The excitement and momentum of his escape is intoxicating and quick, but not without vivid detail as he wards off goons and climbs out of a high window onto a stone awning, the action and movement bursting with stellar and compelling visual decisions and blocking and direction. Philip's escape and subsequent fight with Maleficent is among the best, if not the best, sequence Disney has ever put onto the big screen. Every frame is gorgeous, kinetic, and brilliantly creative, especially in how the fairies assist Philip through changing arrows to flowers, boulders to bubbles, shielding him with a rainbow, and helping his horse jump a wide gap over the bridge, creating my favorite shot of the whole film. Once Maleficent is aware of its escape, the action heightens as she summons lightning bolts in his path, crashing in time with the operatic score. She surrounds the castle with thorns that make the frame claustrophobic through great usage of layers, and Philip cuts through as the background fades into a white fog that simplifies the action, a similar technique to the dream ballet of Cinderella, but used for a very different effect and mood. Maleficent refuses to fail and finally sends herself to stop him, turning herself into a massive dragon calling upon the powers of hell through an unbelievable transformation sequence with bright green fire that further accentuates her palette. The fight is perfect, further stripping down the background of bright orange so the silhouettes are easy to read and striking as they fight with Philip's back against a cliff. With the fairy's final enchantment on the sword, he defeats Maleficent once and for all. He finally returns to Aurora and wakes her with a kiss as the fairies return color to the castle and the film ends with their pleasant wedding dance. Disney ends the decade on their highest note of spectacle and scale yet, and bring Wolfgang Reitherman to the forefront in a significant way in Sleeping Beauty. This film sets a watermark that is difficult for the studio to follow for many years to come, especially when costs for production set a new high and the film did not see a strong return at the box office. The film has garnered significant acclaim now, of course, but this is true of most older Disney films regardless of quality. As Reitherman becomes a leading creative force and Walt's focus on animation wanes, the direction of the studio changes in ways that create a new style out of cutting costs, leaving Sleeping Beauty as a testament to the momentum of the strongest decade the studio ever saw. Next up, 101 Dalmatians, 1961. Please go to ghostofjoe.com to see all these essays. You can also find a link to this one directly in the show notes of this upload. And there you will find in-text citations and works cited. And share it with anyone who you think cares a lot about Disney animation. You can also find myself on Twitter at ghostofjoe, ghostofjo. The music used in this audio version is from The Skeleton Dance, a Disney Silly Symphony short. Thank you for listening and reading. <laughs>